All right. Well, I think we can start. All the conversation is over. So we don't meet for this uh, hour for fellowship, so knock it off. <laughs> Just kidding. That's as important a part of it as anything uh, else. What in the world? Oh, he's taking a picture of this. Um, what I've done up on the board is try to um, summarize a little bit of what we did last week and what we're going to do uh, this week in the sense that uh, I mean, you can see how neatly I wrote it out. So <laughs> it's, uh, I was working on how to, how to put this in one uh, kind of um, pictorial, nonverbal, uh, chart form way. Because um, what the Apostle Peter has to say here about false teaching or apostasy or heretic, uh, all of those labels would be pretty much interchangeable, uh, is is the most complete and succinct in the entire New Testament. Uh, A number of the Apostles, Paul particularly, of course, because he wrote 13 of the letters of the New Testament, but uh, most of them address this. But Peter's is so thorough and so comprehensive. And so uh, my daughter reminds me, and my wife stopped reminding me a long time ago, that my writing is terrible. So if this, none of this is clear to you, <laughs> please let me know. But um, the topic uh, is, you know, this is the topic. Just to make sure you don't confuse this with this. It's uh, false teachers, apostates, or heretics. They're pretty much interchangeable terms. And uh, just for the purposes of breaking it into three parts. We've already covered this, but their precepts, what they, uh, what, what they taught, what they represented, and we've gone through all this, I'm not going to go over it again, but they denied the master who bought them. They denied Jesus. Sensuality, that's how that Greek term is translated into one English word, but there's a lot to it. It's more than just sexual connotation to it, and in Greek, that's pretty self-evident what that means. And what Peter does here, I think, is, is interesting because in between summarizing what they teach and what they practice, he affirms their certain judgment. And I think that's it's really interesting how he does that because, uh, not that this matters, I guess, but if I were doing it, I would say, here's what they teach, here's what they practice, and here's what God's going to do with them. That's not how Peter does it. Here's what they teach, here's their certain judgment, and here's what they practice. So, uh, um, again, I hope you can read all this. This is summarizing what we did last week. And what Peter does to prove this, this meaning there's certain judgment, is if God did not judge the angels who rebelled against him, and you see their heights of the rebellion in Genesis 6, why in the world would you not be certain he's going to judge these guys? If he did not judge Cainite civilization with the flood, which is what, remember, that's what happens there, why in the world would he not judge them? And if he did, if he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and as he says, for their sexual immorality, it's how he puts it, why in the world would he not hold them accountable? So what Peter is doing is saying, man, if God's judgment means anything, he's going to hold these people accountable. So that's why I simply put it as their certain judgment. Now that's kind of where we left off last week. Um, and I hope that makes sense. So is that a good review? Are you still yep. with me? Yep. 
I mean, it's just I, I really want you to uh, I really want you to to have a clear understanding of what Peter is saying here because uh, man you and I uh, you and I face a culture and a broader Christianity where there's an awful lot of false teaching going on. I would say some apostasy, and I would say clear intentional heresy. So is God going to deal with that? The answer is yes. If he dealt with these folks and these three examples from history, their judgment is certain as well. So with that all said, again, summarizing what we did uh, really the last two weeks, this is going to take a little, well, maybe it won't depend on your question, but for the most part, this is a little bit longer in terms of total number of verses because he took two parts for uh, nine, ten, and ten verses. This is going to take another twelve or so. But again, I've tried to break this into some meaningful headers. This is their practice. There's a contempt for authority. Now, it's really interesting what he says about that, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the contempt for authority is a disregard for angelic power and authority. Secondly, their unruliness, that is unruliness is that word, and I will identify as we look at these verses 12 through 16, there are five aspects of their unruliness and how they live their lives. And then lastly, it's how he ends it, kind of a longer section, uh, their impotence, which, again, maybe I should have chosen another word, but impotent in terms of purpose and meaning to life. These are people who live for the moment. Uh, and it's kind of a, it ha- all of this has sort of a contemporary <coughs> ring to it in the 21st century. Because there's a broad-based contempt for authority in our culture. The millennial generation, which uh, is the one that is now beginning to get into leadership and all the different facets of our culture, is a general disregard and lack of commitment to institutions and authority. There is a, an overall general, but it's pretty potent, unruliness in how people live their lives. And there's largely an impotence in purpose and meaning for life. People today live for the moment, and there's no real sense of um, what's going to happen. Again, these are very broad stroke statements, but what's going to happen about tomorrow? I don't want to think about it. Don't talk to me about death. Don't talk to me about eternity. Don't talk, I don't want to talk about those things. And so some of this is extremely relevant uh, for us today. So I'd like to dig into it now. This is the big overview, and I won't do this again. No matter where we get today, I'm not going to do that again. But I just wanted you to, it's, it's um, I mean, I did put some thought to it, even though it's written on a piece of scratch paper, but... It's, it's to try to organize this in a way that uh, takes something that's very complicated when you just read it. But once it's organized, you get a sense of what is he really doing here? What's the structure of the argument he's making? I think it makes it easier then for us to think about it applicationally for us today. So with all that stuff said, everybody with me? Some of you are straining your eyes and making all kind of body language issues that indicate you can't read what I wrote. And that's tough, because that's the way I write. So if you don't understand it, ask me a question. Otherwise, I'm going. Did you read the bottom part? Which bottom part? The whole bottom part? All, all three of them. Over here, it's uh, last two are sensuality and greed. 
This last one is God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the other column is, uh, just the last one, impotent in purpose and meaning, 17 to 22. Is that what you yeah, I got did to get it? Okay, no, that's good. That's what I wanted you to do. All right. Uh, so we're, we're picking up now in verse 10, really the middle of verse 10, so I'll call it 10b, where Peter begins to summarize the way in which they live their lives, their practice. And so 10b, it's right in the middle of the verse. I would put a, a little break there. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So, just look at that, and it's really unusual how he does this. I mean, it, it, it really is. I read from the ESV translation, so there might be a little bit of a different nuance in how, if you have a different translation. Bold and willful, they do not tremble. The phrase bold and willful should be understood as not a good, positive, affirming boldness. I mean, there are times in life when it's good to be bold, to be courageous. But that term bold there is a term of being reckless, of being foolish. This isn't a positive, affirming boldness. This is a foolhardy, reckless, you could be very strong and say stupid kind of boldness. And in willful, there is an intentional arrogance and... and um, almost abandonment in any kind of common sense as they blaspheme those in spiritual authority. They don't tremble. There's a reckless, foolhardy arrogance as they defy authority. There's no trembling before authority. And he says, you really see that exemplified in blaspheming the glorious ones slandering angelic power, slandering demonic power, slandering, I'm above all spiritual authority at all. I mean, that's a, probably, in a sense, a little bit of hyperbole here. But Peter is saying these people are so reckless as in, in their teaching and how they live their lives, and they're so... A uh, word we would use today, they're so given to personal autonomy that they're not answerable to anybody. They don't, e they don't even accept, they will reject completely any charge that demonic satanic power is energizing their apostasy. They won't even say that. Oh, no. And even to the extent, I don't even believe in the spiritual world. I don't even believe in the in the in the world beyond. I mean, it's that kind of reckless, uh, foolhardy statements. I am my own authority. Don't charge me with submitting to any other authority. That's the sense of what Peter's saying. Does that do you, do you understand? I mean, he he's maybe he's maybe because we don't know exactly all that they taught here in the specific uh, 
instance that he's to, to, to whom he's writing this this letter of these people that are being challenged by these false teachers. But he's saying these people are so foolhardy and reckless, and so given to the personal autonomy as their source of authority. Don't don't even charge them with being demonic or satanic in the source of their their energy and their teachings and. Nah, this is from me. I don't recognize any. He says, even angels don't do what they do. Even false angels don't do what they do. So whether he's using a bit of hyperbole, but his main point is there is utter contempt for authority. Um, two words come to mind. Uh, one is that they're taking license. The other one, uh, do you think brazen might be descriptive of their behavior? Another good word, absolutely. Brazen would fit with those Greek terms translated bold and willful, absolutely, brazen. And, um, you know, I don't know how much you know in, in just the history of the church or even within recent times, but there, there, are certain, um, there are certain false teachers that might be at least fairly relevant to, to your lifetime. Do you remember the Branch Davidians down in Waco, Texas? Or do you remember that? Do you remember their leader, David Koresh? He was, this, he was that kind of a person. He was that kind of a person. And he was, he was, so, abso- he was so absolutely authoritarian in how he did everything I don't care what the Department of Justice says. I don't, and I am speaking for Jesus Christ. And don't, don't put any other kind of authority as the sort. No, do you remember? Um, oh, what was that guy? It was down in Latin America. He James Jones. James Jones. That that whole movement. And you know, I don't know if you remember. They vast. Anyway, there's a couple hundred. I forget how many. But they all committed suicide at his at his insistence. I mean, those kind, that's the kind of person that could come to mind in our lifetime that fits what Peter's saying here. This is the nature of false teachers. They are an authority unto themselves. And, and that's a, Robert's word is a great word. They're so brazen, so reckless, so foolhardy, that don't, don't, even, don't even charge them with having their source of their authority coming from satanic evil. No. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, almost, a, it's an, almost an impossible way to imagine until you start thinking of like the David Koresh's of history. Then you start, yeah, I can understand what he's saying there. Is, it, is Peter giving up on them, giving them over to what they are, <laughs> saying that they're beyond any intervention, any correction. And I guess the extension of that is we look around at our own culture. How, how should we think about that? Well, it certainly would be true to say, Jim, that ultimately only God is the one who can make that kind of a judgment about a human being. So, But certainly it's a, it's a little bit like some of the language that the Apostle Paul uses, I would think again, like in Romans 1. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. Or it's like uh, in the case which we studied a couple years ago in Exodus of Pharaoh. 
and you know uh, it would say Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened, and it says and God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart for His greater glory. So, in in a in a in a pragmatic sense, what you're saying is it would probably be right from Peter's perspective. These people are probably beyond hope. Now, only God knows if that's correct or true, because often even people that uh, I could think of, for example, the Apostle Paul, who was so convinced what he was doing was right, when he gives his autobiographical account in Acts 23, he says, with a, with a good conscience, I persecuted the church. I believed I was doing the thing God wanted me to do, no matter what anybody else said. So, But there is always that, from God's perspective, he can smash into somebody's life and bring them around to truth. But for the most part, I think you're right. And when I, I've read that thing with David Koresh, I'm not as as much of a, uh, in the details of James, Jim Jones's uh, colony down there, but Koresh was one of those guys. I, I, I think he was so beyond any kind of reasonable, rational uh, ability to converse with him about why he was so wrong. Um, I would put him in that category, but again, only the Lord knows that, but so our current, and in, our current culture, then, should we, how do we look at that? <sighs> oh, Jim, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I think it is really important that's where he's going to end up. It is very important for us to make it clear we will have nothing to do with them. We'll have nothing to do with them. Uh, in Second John, I think it's Second John verse 9, I might... It's you know it's only no chapter so it's not that big of a book, but I think it's in Second John nine. John says, "Don't even let them into your house. Don't let false teachers into your home. Don't show them the hospitality you show to others." Which is to me, and that's an instructive directive. That's an important directive. That's a a, a wise directive, because you know what they're teaching. You know they're teaching error intentionally and willfully. Don't even show them hospitality, which is that's pretty unusual because normally we are supposed to show hospitality even to unbelievers. But he's adamant there. Draw the line on that issue. So to me, I uh, um, just as an example, JW has um, come to my house a couple times in the summer. Although they seem to be driving by lately, and they go to other houses, but uh, and I, I will not let them in. You know, they kept, oh, can we come in? I said, no, we'll just talk here on the porch. And then I do real mean spirited things like when to get my Greek New Testament. Said, now what were you saying? The Greek said so, which is not very nice. But Fred, I was just thinking too about how some of these people maybe on the peripheral or peripheral area might be. Um, within God's grace rather than having them judged immediately. Um, we've, we've learned earlier in other scriptures that he doesn't bring judgment immediately upon people who deny him. Um, and I think you're talking here about very extreme situations of these people, which we do have, but also their followers who may not Fully I think that's a that's a different question then. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jim, I thought I understood Jim's question to be about the leaders, yeah. but uh, followers, and that's a little bit of a different story because usually, well, again, I, I want to be careful about 
generalizing, but often those kinds of, let's give them a label we often give them, cult, are uh, especially attractive to kids that are having different issues in life, that, that come from dysfunctional situations. Uh, they're adults who have failed in a lot of different ways in their life, and this is a way they see to find meaning and purpose, that kind of thing. I would separate very, and I, again, I think John does that too, separate the leaders, the teachers, from the people who are following. That's, they're two different categories there, it seems to me. Certainly Jesus did that. He was harder on the Pharisees, but he was as compassionate as possible to be with the people who were following the Pharisees. In that David Koresh thing, I think, uh, perhaps illustrates that. There's a, apparently there's a TV series on it recently. Oh, is that right? I didn't, no, I didn't know that. I'm not. So on the whole Branch Davidian thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. It, oh, it's apparently oh. it makes the point that, you know, those people, quote, unquote, were attacked by... Uh, uh, perhaps a, a too vigorous Clinton administration. You know, what's her name? Is Attorney General. Janet Reno was the Attorney General at that time. So the question is, so your point I think is important. And I'm a little out of my league here, but it just seems to me that if I recall right, those there was a threat. There, there I, I think the Jimmy Jones thing had already happened. Is that right? Oh, I think so, yes. I think that so had already occurred. Absolutely. There was concern about what might happen to the innocent people. Yeah, absolutely. The children particularly, some of yes. the children and all that. This guy was out of control. So yeah, yeah. was the government's attack unjustified? I, yeah. I don't recall that it was. Well, I mean, let's maybe stay away from that issue because, I mean, it is how does the state then react to something like that? That in a, That's another question that... Yeah. Um, you know, that the Bible does say some things. I think Peter's directive here is how do you as the church, you and how do you react? And that's kind of um, because as had been the case in both of these situations that we use as illustration, ultimately the state did act, whether it's in Latin America or in the United States. The state does act in these kinds of areas, yes. as Rome did with cults. Rome, when, when a cult got beyond the standards that Rome and Empire set, Rome would crush it. Yeah. And that's, but that's another issue. <laughs> Let's look at the next area of, and here that's a little more detailed, I've identified five items of unruliness in living. And the reason I chose the word unruliness is look at how he describes in verse 12, he describes them. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. The, I mean, just look at that language. What's he saying? The, the, but these, these are the false teachers. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, all three of those apply to the animal kingdom. And so what's he saying? They're unruly in how they live. And so he cites what I, I identified as five aspects of this animal-like, instinctive, self-destructive behavior. So that would be another way to put it. 
this in, this instinctive, ir- irrational, self-destructive behavior. One, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. Blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant. What, what are they blaspheming? Well, they're denying Jesus. They're denying sound doctrine. And they're slandering. That's not true. Don't believe that stuff about Jesus. That's not true. Nobody would ever believe that kind of stuff about a man named Jesus. So where would an admitted atheist fall into uh, some of this? Well, the, 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 that would fit if someone had been in the church, had identified themselves as a Christian, and abandoned it. They were raised in that kind of a home, raised in that kind of situation, and they leave it and embrace atheism. That would fit this. Because these are, because as he described much earlier, when we way back at the beginning, these are people that are within, within the Christian movement. I hesitate to say church, but I'll, I guess I could say it if I put it in quotes. And they abandon it, and they leave it for something else, and they embrace something else. That's the false teacher. That's the apostate. That's the heretic. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm nuancing your question. I hope I, I, I'm, I'm not confusing you in how I'm answering it. If, if it's someone that had come out of a Christian situation, culturally or familial, and they leave it and abandon it and embrace something, then this would fit this kind of a, a situation. But if someone has always been an atheist, they've never ever... That's a little bit of, that's, that would be in the same category as someone who's a Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. They've never, ever, ever uh, accepted or even tipped their hat toward Christianity. Then you treat that person like you do in a missionary situation. But he's talking about somebody who has been in our movement, broadly speaking, and leaves it for something else. A false, demonstrably, intentionally, clearly false set of teachings. Oh, it's a thinking about the Jehovah Witness and the Mormons and wondering uh, how they're to be looked at uh, by a Christian. In this category, Woody. In this category. But not... When you say it's common, do you guys around here see a lot of false teaching other than that guy we were talking about last week, Jim Baker, the guy that's selling, you know, Fruit Loops on the internet so you can live in, you know, off the grid for a while, right? That that guy's obviously false teaching. I think we all agree to that, but you say it's common. But I suspect he's pointing out some extreme examples, but for example, uh, Dr. Eckman used the reference of an Easter service uh, in a prominent Omaha church some years ago. Yeah. Um, that's a lesser, a, 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 the statement made their service was very not ignorant and not true about the Bible. But it was, an, it, yeah, and it was, a, but that was an intentional, willful departure from historic, biblical, authoritative Christianity. Is that the Easter example? event, did not, it, would, it would be an example. It would be an example. Less high profile. Would, would, you, would you find, I was listening to a sermon online with James McDonald this morning about this very subject, not James McDonald, 
Jim McCarthy. Well, he was talking about how um, the Catholics, they were talking about um, evangelical missionaries in Italy and how difficult it is then for them there because the Catholics, and I grew up Catholic, so I can maybe, um, then since they put Mary on more of a pedestal than they should, is that what they kind of think about? Well, I really, I've got to go here. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll leave. <laughs> now, what we're talking next week, I hope Jesus comes back. So I don't have to answer the question. You know, it's, um, boy, you know, Dave, what you're asking there is, is, a, is a relevant and good question. I want to be really careful there in, in a sense in how I answer it. Um, because there are many people that would consider themselves Christians, but in Roman Catholic tradition, who are genuinely Christians. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I know, I'm sure I can't remember where all of you come from in terms of your tradition, but I know in this group there are a couple of people who have been in, involved in the Catholic tradition. In all my other classes, when I went on Sunday night, I, I would bet there are 15 people that come to that class that are from a Roman Catholic background. So, um, I want to be very careful how I dissect your question, and I therefore will dissect my answer in the same way. I would say that some of the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, what they call the magisterium, that's the big Latin word they give for it, there are examples there of very clear error when it comes to the Bible as your singular source of authority. Are you following me? I'm trying to answer this. And so some of those things, you could get very close to saying they are heretical. But you have to be careful because some of the greatest defenses that in, in the history of the church, some of the greatest defenses of the, of the doctrine of God as Trinity come from Roman Catholic theologians. Some of the, well, the best defense I have ever read of the doctrine of the Trinity from the Roman Catholic theologian of the 5th century. Um, so, I mean, you have to be Aquinas, who was a great scholastic theologian, lived in the 1200s. He's written some of the most masterful, masterful defenses of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're just wonderful. So that's why you have to be really careful, because there is a lot of really sound orthodoxy. But some of, over, the t- over time, um, the things that inch their way into, and you mentioned one of them, the veneration of Mary. Um, not everyone agrees with this, but some have even taken it to the extent of naming her as co-redemptrix with her son. Redemptrix is a Latin word for redeemer. Co-redeemer of the son, that's heresy. That's a heretical statement in terms of the New Testament. New Testament would never accept that. So I'm, I'm being real careful there. And then let me conclude with this, Dave, and, and perhaps you know, I know that absolutely because I've talked to so many of them. I would say the majority, maybe that's, but I'll say it nonetheless, because that's 51% or more. A majority of Roman Catholics really don't know the theology of their church. I mean, they really don't know it. Just like for many evangelical Protestants sitting in the pew that don't really know the doctrine of their church which is something I'm committed to overturning. That's why I do these kinds of things. Because I want, I want people to know the doctrine 
that the Bible lays out for us to understand and, and, and embrace. So that's kind of my answer to your question. It's a long answer, but I wanted to nuance it and dissect it carefully because I do think we have to be careful how we address that. Um, I've been in Latin America, and Latin American Roman Catholicism, as it is practiced, is much different than North American uh, Catholicism. I mean, there is, uh, we see it in, in, in a you know, Catholic church, say, here in, in Omaha or something. But you go to some of the Catholic cathedrals and churches, like in Quito, Ecuador, uh, where I've or been not so long ago. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely astonishing what you see there in the statues and figurative stuff about Mary. In one uh, small little, when I was there, my son and I were there, I wanted to see the major cathedral. And there's one in the south side, it's very small. Mary's hanging on the cross. That is an astonishing, I've never seen it. I've never seen anything like that. That's a blatant embracing of the doctrine, uh, or it's not an official doctrine, so we call it that, but of a teaching of Mary's co-redemptrix. I don't think the papacy would approve of that directly. I mean that. I don't think the papacy would approve of that. But you see it, and that's just the diversity of, of where Roman Catholicism is in terms of the different regions and locations of its, of its practice. So again, I'm, I, I, I hope the way I answered that was okay. So that, that, that's consistent with, the, with, the, with Paul's statement here of the false prophets within, mm. within, 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 you know, exactly. Because uh, I, I agree that there are many, many Roman Catholics. Oh, yeah. So they're, 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 they're Absolutely. in their faith. But they, 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 they follow some of the Catholic traditions, which I, I don't fully understand. But they yeah. agree that, they and others, even who may, I mean, I've, had the privilege of, of leading some of them. They come to a faith commitment to Jesus Christ, but they remain in the church. They remain in that that's tradition. It's been an important part of their life, their family, for a couple of generations. And they just don't, they just can't break with it. And so they keep it. And so then they come to, like, Bible studies I teach or others, and that's where they're getting true. But they still remain a part of that tradition. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to, command to them with, I have no authority to do that, you've got to leave it. Let's look at some of these. Un- I, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, George. When, I'm a Catholic, and, uh, and I study the theology of the church intently, uh, mm. particularly recently, Thomas Aquinas. Good, good. But, but I have never run across anyone or any church that I've been to or know about that has Treated Mary as a co-redemptor, so that's foreign it, to me. It's uh, John Paul II. Remember John right, Paul II. Course. John Paul II. That was a very, very important part of his belief. I understand that. Yeah, and but, he but, wanted to get it dogmatized, but it never. It, it never was never. Got, no, never it was never officially made dogmatized. That step. Right. Right. And exactly. for good reason. Yeah. I right. Think. But, but, uh, but, the, the the issue of Mary and her position in the church, however, mm-hmm. is. We could talk for hours sure. about that, sure. and I'm not going to get into that right now. But the veneration of Mary is uh, an essential part of, of the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and it really is for reasons I'm not going to get into right now because we don't have time to do yeah. that. But yeah. but I think that for anybody who questions that uh, that 
most cases, they don't know what they're talking about. And so I would just, anybody who has any questions about there or thinks that's the case, that she should not be venerated, ought to look into that further. Yeah. Well, it, and again, you know, George, it really depends on who is teaching that and how they're teaching it. Right. I mean, um, it, it's like John Paul II really wanted to make that an official doctrine that never was accepted. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a proper understanding of the role of Mary in the redemptive program is a part of the gospel. But then, uh, what do you do? And it, it, le it led to things that are not taught in the New Testament example, like the Immaculate Conception of Mary, mm -hmm. or like in 1954 when they added the doctrine of, of her uh, bodily you know, taken into heaven, that kind of. Right. Those are things that uh, those who um, look at the Bible as the final authority say, it's hard for me to embrace that when I don't see it taught mm -hmm. in the scriptures. But some of it is a logical extension of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches because of this, therefore she has to be this. Mm -hmm. That's kind of right. how it begins, those connections start to be put together. Right. Well, all right, now that we've had our little trek down some controversy, let's go back to what Peter is saying here. His point is they're unruly in how they like animals. And and the blaspheming of matters which then number number two in terms of the they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So the second aspect is they're deceptive, duplicitous. Now, if you are deceiving people, if you're deceptive, if you're making it the noun deception, is that willful and conscious? Yes. I mean, you can, um, I mean, I hope the language I use here I hope makes sense. You can unknowingly deceive somebody because what you think is true is, is not true. But if you know something is false and you still deceive people to embrace that which is false, that's what he's, that's what he's talking about here. So here's the second aspect of unruliness is they're consciously, willfully deceiving you as they feast on you. And it's a... Uh, it's, it's one of the, and I, I think I can say this with, with the authority of the scriptures. Satan's most effective strategy is deception. That's his most effective strategy. That's what he did with Eve in Genesis 3. And if you look at the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, which is talking about the end times, four times he says, do not be deceived. And it's in the context of the uh, abominable one, which is how Jesus speaks of him in Matthew 24, the beast of Revelation, the Antichrist of 1 John. That's, that will be his primary tool. He will deceive. Because he is the antichristos, the anti instead of in place of Christ, vast hordes of humanity will follow him because they believe he's Christ. That's what anti-Christos, anti-Christ means. He is the false Christ. He's instead of Christ. People will follow him because they believe he's the Messiah, because they believe he's Christ. And in the book of Revelation, it says he'll do signs and wonders. And I see what I'm saying is what what. What Peter is doing here is saying is that the heart 
of apostasy and false teaching and heresy is deception. It's taking something that has a kernel of truth and winding all around it error and presenting this as the final truth on the subject. Also known as being a straw man. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's why it's so important, and of course that's where Peter's going to end up here, it's so important that we know what the truth is. Because if you know what the truth is, you will not be deceived. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul says in Ephesians 4, you who are leaders of the church, teach your people the doctrine of the faith so that when the winds of affliction blow, they will not be knocked over. Now he's using figurative metaphorical language there, but he's saying teach them the truth so that when they're bombarded by error, they won't be convinced of the error. They'll say, no, that's not true. I'm preaching here, so I shouldn't do that. But it's that it's that's what Peter's doing here. The second aspect of their unwillingness is they're consciously, willfully deceiving you. <laughs> Jim, in law, there's uh, there's a word fraud that we use today, and it's the intentional misrepresentation of a material fact made for the purpose of inducing another to rely. To in this case spiritual, but in world law, yeah, that's true. Uh, to their legal detriment, so it is meant to mislead because mm-hmm. it's a knowing uh, misrepresentation, which is fraud, and uh, it's it's about a material fact, mm-hmm. and they know that if they do it right, they can in fact mislead. Mm-hmm. And then you, as the prosecuting attorney, must prove it that they willfully and unknowingly were doing that, which right. becomes often difficult to do, but beyond a reasonable doubt. But yeah, that's exactly right. And so, um, so many people. I, you know, my my mother, bless her soul, she's she's alone now and so on. And one of the things I've just told her, Mom, no matter what anybody says to you on the phone, do not give them any money. Yeah. I mean, mom has a very tender heart, and you know she hears somebody uh, one time. One of the, this was going around for I haven't heard about that, but um, you would get these robocalls. Hi, Grandma. This is Jonathan. That's my son's name. He lives in England. Grandma, I'm really short on money, and I if 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 I don't get I don't remember what the amount was. It's hundreds of dollars, whatever. I, I, they're they're going to they're going to put me in jail, Grandma. Can you send me some money? That's exactly the kind of call she got. Have you I've heard? Have you heard? Of, how in the world? How in the world these fraudulent? How they could get that my mother's grandson is Jonathan, my son, but they did, and my mother was this close to sending a check. I'm surprised she did. Well, I I am too. I am too. That's what I mean. I, I was so I just said, Mom, I think God protected you because because then she asked a question. She said, Well, Jonathan, your your dad has never told me you were having trouble. And she started and she started and then the person ended the conversation. Which I thought I just thought I guess the Lord must have put that in her mind to ask that question. But I mean for people like, you know, often elderly people or whatever the situation, but people that are very vulnerable, an appeal like that, right. oh my goodness, they, it's Jonathan? It sounded like Jonathan? Right. 
And so, uh, anyway, why did I say all that? Oh, it's because of Fred, yeah. But I mean, that kind of that fraudulent <laughs> type of. Uh, it's not just uh, us keeping, uh, delaying the whole thing at YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thirdly, verse 14, they, they have eyes. It's interesting how he puts this. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Now, look at that language. It's figurative. They have eyes. That's, that's a metaphor. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. ESV translate. What does that mean, insatiable for sin? What does insatiable mean? Not You're never satisfied, never quenched. So, I mean, this is... This is thoroughly self-indulgent, the extreme of self-indulgent. Their eyes full of adultery. I mean, that, that can mean literal sexual adultery, but adultery can be a metaphor for just wanton living. Insatiable for sin. Whoa, I mean, you're starting to see that there's much, much deeper understanding of the error of these false teachers. It's thoroughly self-satisfying, self-indulgent, selfish, self-centered. Is it possible that that's why they are heretical and and saying these sort of things to justify could be. their their basic base nature? Could be. Yeah. I mean, could be. That's, that's part of it. Yeah, I you know in all examples of this throughout the history of the church, I'm sure they're not always the case, but that often is the case. Yeah, there's a per, there's a willful conscious distortion and deception and all that because of what you're getting out of the deal, personally. They get into a circular argument and then and, and they're caught up and caught up in their self themselves are caught up into it and and it just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy mm. then. Mm, yes, that's that good. Very, very, very easily. And fourthly, we've seen this before. They have their. I, I just like how he puts this. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So you have this self-indulgent, self-centered hearts trained in greed. Now again, that's how the ESV translates that. What do you think he's getting out there? Trained in greed. Me and nobody else. Okay. Practiced. Okay. If um, if you're trained in something, it, it usually infers somebody's been doing the training. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and so it's trained in greed, accursed children. So it's, it's those two little phrases connected. Trained in greed, accursed children. Peter seems to be alluding to there's a whole culture that has, has just produced this. Trained in greed. Um. May I just throw something in here that is, I think, something else to be very alert to. On television, and the television evangelists are still around on the cable channels and stuff, you have a prosperity theology that's being taught. Um, Jim Baker was one of those early prosperity theologian teachers on TV. 
in his uh, Praise the Lord network. And that's, there's, there's really a danger there because what's really motivating that is it's, it's feeding. It's feeding the desire for people to be greedy. I mean, it really is. And I, I, I hesitate to name names, so I won't do it. But there are, there are some on some of the cable shows that you just you have you listen to them for about ten minutes, and I that's about how long I listen to them. I turn it off, but it, it you you just hear what they're saying. They're playing on the greedy, self, self indulgent penchant that we all have, and that's appealing. Plant a seed. Send me a thousand dollars, and in a month it'll become ten thousand dollars. I heard a man say that on national television. Well, not now, cable. The cable. Just think about that for a minute. Send me a thousand dollars. Plant the seed, and in thirty days it'll be ten thousand. Trained in greed, accursed children. You listen to somebody like that. He's been trained in greed, and he's trying to train you in greed. Instead of righteousness, instead of other-centered living, it's all about me. I'll give him thousand. I'll get ten thousand. That's a great investment. Somebody who could guarantee me that kind of return, I'd give him a thousand bucks. But that just—that's what that's feeding is not wise stewardship of resources. It's feeding miserly, self-destructive greed. That's not the gospel. And that's, so as, as John said a couple of minutes ago, you get their, you know, which is the chicken and the egg here? Is it their false teaching that leads to this, or is it this that leads to their false teaching? And I, I, don't, well, I don't think we can ever answer that question necessarily, but this unruliness, as Peter's unpacking this, or like peeling it back like an onion, layer after layer, now he's getting at the heart of it. Trained in greed. I mean, they're full of it, don't they? <clears throat> Trained in greed. And then look at how he ends it up. I think we can get this done. i really got to be very pleased if we can do this. <clears throat> they have followed, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What's that referring to? Unless you know the Old Testament, this may be a little bit, ooh, I think I heard of that in Sunday school. But that's the account in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. It's mentioned several times throughout the Bible. It's mentioned in, in, in the letters to uh, the seven churches or in the book of Revelation. It is a prophet who sold his soul for money. That's what he did. And so the way of Balaam is you distort and you pervert for the sake of money. And so he's putting the crown on his argument of the unruliness of how these people live. They're like they're following the way of Balaam. That little phrase, the way of Balaam, is used several times in the New Testament. And he was, and you have to go to the Numbers 22, 23, 24 count, 
where it is a donkey. His donkey starts speaking to him, which <laughs> is one of those acts of God to finally get Balaam's attention. It might do that if your donkey starts speaking to you, but it's how God finally does bring him down. But it's the, the bottom line is it becomes it becomes a pattern that is used in the New Testament writers. You're using spiritual authority because he was a prophet. He was he was called to curse Israel. Instead, he ended up blessing Israel and all that. But he's he's taking money to do something that a spiritual leader was supposed to do. In this case, God turned around and turned it into a blessing for Israel. But you have to go back and read the whole story. But it's that way of Balaam and 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 Peter's capping it off. This is the heart of who they are, and it really gets back to your question. Did they start teaching the heir to get the, satisfying all their own selfish, greedy needs? Or as they started to seek to satisfy then, I mean, I don't know which, which leads to which. But it's the crowning indictment of these apostates. It shows you what they really are like. And um, I'll tell you, man, that is one of the real, I mean this, Sincerely, that is one of the dangers of spiritual success. You found a church, it's a small church, and all of a sudden it's a mega church. And as the senior pastor of that mega church, you're earning a lot more money than when you started. And you see, wow, I write all these books and send out all these tapes and, and all this. And, you know, all of a sudden you've created, and this sounds a little cynical, I don't mean it to sound that way, but you create like an empire, a spiritual empire, and it feeds on itself. And I'll tell you, that is the greatest danger to a successful ministry. And I mean that because I have known men that I went to graduate school with, and I saw how God blessed them and Two of those guys have fallen. I mean, they've fallen. They they were extremely successful, and I, I, they didn't. They weren't apostate. That's not what I mean. But they they became so enamored by the material success that they were seeing happening with the success of the ministry. Instead of it being all about Jesus, it's all about me. And when that started. When a guy starts listening to his own tapes, he's in trouble. (laughs) And that's why Hendricks used to tell us, gather around yourself a group of men that will keep you humble, keep you accountable. And in my own personal life, not that that matters, but that's what I've tried to do. when When you achieve a degree of of success and blessing, that's dangerous. That's just as dangerous as the other side. It would be a trap. It, it is. It is. I mean, it, and you have to be so careful. And that's, um, that is a way in which the way of Balaam is used in the New Testament. It, it's not, that's not how it's used here. But you can, you can use your spiritual gifts and authority for very selfish, personally self-elevating ends. And when that's happening, you are no longer pleasing the Lord in what you're doing. So uh, this is a major, wow, this is a major indictment. Now, we didn't finish the last one, so we'll start next week at verse 17. And there is a, there's a tremendous principle that is laid out in verse 19 by Peter. It's a tremendous principle. 
I want to spend some time on. So next week we'll probably, unless you ask me lots of questions, we'll finish chapter 2 and get into chapter 3, which is about the day of the Lord and about uh, prophetic teaching. And that has a, there's some important lessons there. My favorite part of Second chapter uh, Peter 3 is when people keep making fun of you because you think Jesus is coming back and it's been so long, which is really appropriate for us today. It's 2,000 years since Jesus made that promise. You mean you still believe in that archaic stuff? So we'll find out how he suggests we answer that. I'm going to pray here. Lord, thank you. Um, well, thank you, first of all, for these men and their willingness to come in the middle of a busy day in their lives and that they set aside this hour to study. And I just thank you for each one of them. Use your word in their lives. Use the uh, material that you you teach us through your word, O Holy Spirit, to bring conviction and transformation in our hearts, in our wills, in our minds, because you're in the business of transforming us into the image of your Son, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the, the privilege we have of gathering, so be with each one of us. Let your Holy Spirit have the freedom to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our will. And may you give us the freedom then to, with joy and anticipation, that each day brings to serve you and to represent you well. Because often it is not only the words we say, but it's the life we live that gets people's attention and draws them to the Savior. So we pray for each one. Give us a good rest of this day, uh, all the activities. I think tomorrow of this major Ashore event, may that be a blessing to the many people that come and and uh, those that will watch it streamed and all the different ways they can access uh, what hopefully will be a tremendous uh, this evening. So we commit all those things to you as we go for our separate ways now. We dismiss, ask you to dismiss us with your, your coveted blessing. May we serve you and may we represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.